Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. We spent some time in the last two days destroying our illusions of righteousness. And if we've allowed the words of Jesus to impact us deeply, all our sense of what we can accomplish and what we can hope for is being crushed. And what, what's one of the side effects of that? Well, the degree to which you can love and appreciate Christ depends upon the degree to which you are prepared to be crushed. It depends on the awareness that you have of your sin. We're all deeply and overwhelmingly sinful, but we have different self-awareness. So we spend these exercises trying to understand our sin and one of the purposes is in order to increase our love and our appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. And as we look at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to keep digging. We're not done yet. Now, we skipped over some verses at the end of chapter 5. And my theory, this should work. Technical issues too. <laughs> oh, no, all about it. Mouse out of the way. All right, again. Might have to get Uncle Theo up here. <laughs> okay, the the big. Uh, Revelation, not really a revelation, but the significant conclusion of chapter five or the second half of chapter five is that you can keep the law and not be righteous. So we cannot contain righteousness to this notion of keeping the law. But Jesus, oh, we said that you have to be perfect. Um, Matthew chapter five, verse 46, Jesus introduces another concept in here. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? And there's two big words in this verse, love and reward. And at the beginning, you remember I said, okay, if you, if you talk to a, a Jewish audience in the first century and said, give me your summation of uh, ethics, of what defines righteousness? How would we summarize it? And, and the thing most people would think of is the Ten Commandments. If you went out on the street today and gathered a bunch of strangers and you said, how would you summarize the best way to live? You know, what is the top ideal in society? And they're going to say, love, right? We should all just love each other. If, if, if we can just love, it's all going to be okay. And there's an element of truth to that, okay? The things we're going to look at through this chapter are not that black and white. But what Jesus is saying here is there's a reward associated with love in some cases. So I love my wife. 
and I graciously surrender most of my paycheck about twice a month and put it at her disposal and I only occasionally complain about it and there's all manner of things that, that, that I might do for my wife because I love her. This is Ava Braun. Anybody know who Ava Braun is? Hitler's wife. Cheater, you heard this before. Um, <laughs> this is Hitler's wife. Did Hitler love his wife? He would have said so. Yeah. Did Hitler love children? Absolutely. Did the Nazis love children? Do we have videos of the Nazis having tremendously beautiful holidays in the Alps with their children? They love their dogs. Stalin, he loved his daughter. Love, all kinds of people love. Now, should those people not love? Should Hitler not have loved his wife? No, no, that's fine. It's okay for Hitler to love his wife, right? We don't want you to come away from this section thinking, oh, I shouldn't love. That's not the issue. The question is, is love righteousness before God? And the answer is not necessarily, right? Now, okay, technically, it's not that love is not equal to righteousness. Love is not necessarily righteousness. You can't just say, I'm feeling love right now, therefore I am righteous, right? That that person is loving and therefore they are righteous. Okay, this is undermining one of the pillars of secular ethics. And the question is, the killer question, Matthew 5, verse 47. What are you doing more than others? Okay, now which others? So for every concept that we put forward in the rest of this chapter, you have to ask yourself, you have to compare yourself to an atheist. Okay, there are lots of atheists in Canada. Do the atheists love their wives? Yes, they do. Do they love their children? Yes, they do. Do they work hard at their jobs? Can they be honest? Can, can they be hardworking? Can they be self-sacrificing? Absolutely. Right? But every one of those noble traits that they present cannot be righteous. They cannot be righteousness. They must be doing it for other reasons. And if you are doing the great and noble thing that the atheists do, that's great. I'm, I'm not trying to discourage you. But don't trick yourself into thinking that that makes you righteous. This is not the definition of righteousness. I work hard at my job. Yeah, atheists do that too. You get a paycheck. Right? That's great. They pay you to be there and do that work. That's not righteousness. That's just a, an exchange. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says in this version, he uses the word beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. If your righteous behavior is intended to impress other people, that's fine. You may be very successful at that. And you get your reward. 
right? You did the good deed and you were rewarded for the good deed and now we're even. There is no debt. God is not even involved in this process. It's a social transaction within a community. Therefore, when you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. There's an assumption in our culture that charity, by definition, is a good deed. But have you ever gone to like uh, maybe a big community center somewhere and they have a wall or a hospital and they have a donor's wall, right? And you you pay, you pay to get your name on it. It might be 10,000, like if you hundred, some people pay a million, the whole pavilion might be named in honor of them. Okay, that's not charity, that's an advertising agreement, right? I pay this money and you put my name out there and, and we're even, right? Don't, don't go to God and say, well, I, but I donated a million dollars to build this emergency room in the hospital. That's great. And your name was plastered on all the walls. Good for you. It's nothing to do with me. If I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, it profits me nothing. Now, I'm eliminating some context there but the point is you can observe someone surrendering all their goods and you can't be certain that that's righteousness jesus found this right when he when he fed the people they all came to hear the teaching and then he fed them and then they came the next day and jesus is like mm, you know truly truly i say to you you're seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of loaves Okay, this is one of the challenges we have as a religious community to get involved in charity. Are we attracting people for the right reasons? There's a documentary that I would recommend that you watch called Poverty Inc. And it describes the international aid system. So, for instance, there's an earthquake in Haiti, and they send in food aid. This is in Haiti, but let's pretend for a second, right? And, and and by the way, I'm very much in favor. Like if, if you want to donate to send food to Haiti when there's an earthquake, by all means do so. Those people are in need, okay? There's a catastrophe. But if you go to Haiti six months later and nine months later, there are warehouses full of food. And guess how much that food costs for the average person showing up? On great million dollars. Okay, lower. Ten dollars lower. Ten cents lower. One cent lower. Zero, right? So there's these great warehouses full of rice, for instance, and you can show up there and for zero dollars you can have your fill of rice. Now, some of you are in farming. Now, I think you said you're in farming, but what, what, what do you farm? A bunch of grain. Bunch of grains. So suppose there's warehouses in North Battleford full of a bunch of grains that are selling for zero dollars. How's your farm gonna do? You're gonna go under. You're gonna go under. 
And so when these guys come in and they bring all this food in over the next year, they destroy the entire agricultural economy of the place that they're coming to help. Okay. And then in two years, when they get bored and the world turns to some other crisis, now, now it's floods in Indonesia. Oh, everything goes to Indonesia. Haiti's forgotten. And now people need rice. And, and, and what happened to all the rice farms? What happened to all the rice farmers? Where did they go? And now you have a chronic, unending dependency on international food aid, because now it's like, well, now we've got hunger. We started with an earthquake. Now we've got hunger, hunger and us Western people like, you guys are terrible at managing things, right? Like you need us to come in and save you all the time. Well, maybe our saving them is ruining them sometimes. Right? And this, again, does this mean we don't donate? Does this mean you don't go help somebody in an earthquake? No, but it means you actually have to put some thought into it. You can't just put the money in the box and say, that's it. I'm a righteous person. I don't care what happened to that money after that. I did my part. You know, if, if, if subsequently this destroys the economy and livelihood of thousands of people, but that's not my problem. That's some administrator's problem somewhere else. Charity is tremendously more complicated than it looks, okay? And we like the feeling of righteousness where we write the check and we send it off and we feel good, right? And we don't worry about the complicated details. But if that's what we're doing, that's our reward, right? We wrote a check and we had a good feeling in our heart and we're even. Don't go to God afterwards and say, well, I was charitable. Yeah, yeah, you enjoyed it. Good for you. You know, you played golf. You enjoyed that too. Good for you. Right. It's not right that we should give up the preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this is a slightly controversial verse because I, I do think in our community, we have problems at both ends of the spectrum. We have a problem where we are too insular and we do not help people that are in need just in the community at large. And we sort of just focus on our own. And, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that that is correct. The assumption in this chapter is that you're going to be charitable, okay? However, there is one remaining area in conservative religion where the atheists are happy with us and that one area is charity right so your atheist neighbor is not going to be happy with almost anything that you think and do but they're going to be very happy if you donate to the local food bank and to the hospital They'll go, yeah that's okay right i agree this is an overlap between the secular world's ethics and our ethics yeah, that doesn't mean we shouldn't donate to charity, but be careful to make sure that our involvement in charity is not because we want to be liked, right? We're not looking for their approval, if that makes sense, right? And, and there's a part of our community that wants to be involved in these grand charitable events so that we can talk to our, our, our co-worker and say, yeah, well, in my church, we do these great humanitarian acts, 
because they're going to accept us on that basis. They're going to say, well, you must be a good church, right? If you're, if you're one of the churches involved in humanitarian work, you must be good. And if that's why we get involved in this work, then that's our reward, right? To be liked by our atheist friends. I'm not sure that's a good trade-off, right? We, we have to be very thoughtful and cautious, I think, in how we approach charity. Luke chapter 13, the disciples are observing catastrophes, right? The tower fell down. Oh my goodness. And those people who were sacrificed on the altar and their blood was mingled and it's it's a disaster, right? And Jesus goes, yeah, you know, it's a disaster. Like I'm not in favor of towers falling down, but you got to put the problems in context, right? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's very dramatic and newsworthy to die when a tower collapses, and maybe not so much to die of cancer in a hospital, like many people do. And Jesus is saying how, how dramatic your death is, is actually not a factor. The real key factor is, did you repent? And this is our secret sauce. This is the ingredient that we can offer people that no other humanitarian or charitable organization can offer is a path to repentance. So charity is not necessarily righteousness. So if you have someone who's loving and who's charitable, maybe they're not righteous. Let me get to prayer. Chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, right? There's a transaction again. They have their reward. This is what makes public prayer one of the most difficult exercises within the community because you have to kind of weigh this balance of, of trying to be sincere but not showing off in some capacity, right? If your prayers are meant to, to elicit the admiration of your audience, it's not righteous at all. It's a transaction. It's another form of advertising. Sorry, sit down. Ecclesiastes 5.2, I try to remember this. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And in this next section, and we see this in prayer and fasting, there's an emphasis on how private some of these things are meant to be. Like seven times in this verse is the word you, or a derivative of it. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Okay, the, the best way to know if your prayer is sincere is if it's just between you and God. Obviously, we still need to pray communally, and that's important. But there's a little element of, uh, of danger in there. Now, again, we're not going to go into the Lord's Prayer. That's a whole separate topic. So you'll forgive me for, for skipping over that section. But what Jesus is telling us is that prayer is not necessarily righteous. So you can have somebody who's loving and charitable and prayerful. 
and it might not be righteous. When you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. But they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, this one's tricky because we tend not to fast. As a community, we don't have a fasting official discipline or culture, at least not generally speaking. And that may be a whole separate study to ask ourselves, why is that? It certainly is quite present all through scripture. So it's something we may, we may want to consider. So I'm going to pivot this a bit and say, well, fasting is, you know, deliberately denying yourself something that you find pleasurable. So we're going to turn it into a question of self-sacrifice. So we want to apply it to our lives here. Are there things that you deny yourself because of your religion? Right? I deny myself a Facebook account. I don't. I do have one. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to deny myself a Facebook account and all the entertainment value that comes from that. Okay. But if I do it, in a way where I can subtly say, oh, no, I'm never in the loop of what's going on because I don't have a Facebook account. I find it too distracting, you know, or, or I don't do this or I don't have that or I or I'm for I'm going to not engage in this kind of behavior or I'm good. Like, what are you giving up? You're giving things up. And again, this is not to say you shouldn't give things up by all means. Give things up. Sacrifice things. The moment you start sharing the fact that you have done it, and, and very subtly, right? Like Jesus mentions that, like they disfigure their appearance. Like, oh, you know, I'm this. Like they don't, they don't advertise it with a neon sign. They try to just sneak it in there. And you can detect it in others, right? You can, you can know when somebody sort of, they call it humble bragging, right? You can tell when someone's humble bragging. Well, guess what? Other people can tell when you are too. Okay? They pick up the nuance. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. that's very noble and righteous and holy of you. Good for you. Okay? And if that reaction happens, you've received your reward. Okay? By all means, cancel your Facebook account. And if you want to tell people that you've done it, that's fine too. But don't Go to God afterwards and expect that God's going to appreciate you canceling your Facebook account. That was between you and the community that now holds you in higher esteem as one of the few who don't have a Facebook account. Colossians 2.23. And this one deals with a variety of different topics in the, in the context, but I'll just cherry pick it. These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom showing off in self-made religion because we're usually picking what we're going to sacrifice and humility and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence that's very surprising to me of no value against fleshly indulgence very risky and again not saying don't self-sacrifice. All I'm saying 
is that if you're sacrificing things, it's not necessarily because you're righteous. Now I used this brick wall slide in the in the in the last session. And what I'm proposing to you, we have love, we have charity, we have prayer, we have self-sacrifice. Is that it? Right? Are those the only topics where this happens? No, it's essentially everything that could be construed by someone as being righteous. Whatever the activity or the adornment or the whatever it is, word choice, anything about your life that may be perceived by others as righteousness may not be righteousness. Think of charity, we think of prayer, we think of fasting, uh, we think of dress codes, we think of Bible versions and prophetic interpretations and various prohibitions. There's all manner of things that if you choose to involve yourself in them and surrender them and advertise them, they may not be righteous. Beware. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? With, it mentions this with prayer. Like the only guarantee you have, the only way you can protect yourself from this risk is to have your actions entirely anonymous. And I like, you know, if you stop by the side of the road and help an old lady change her tire, it's hard to keep that entirely anonymous. Like, right? It's a it's a good story. You want to share that story. Like the moment you break the anonymity, um, you put yourself at risk. Again, I'm not telling you to drive by the old lady and not help her with the tire, right? You help her with the tire no matter what. None of this is advocating less of the behaviors. Now, there's a bit of a apparent contradiction here, because in Matthew 5, we said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Like, hold on, isn't that advertising? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right. So if you can engage in some sort of public righteous behavior, that when people see it, they say, God is great. That's fantastic. Do it. Right. And if they see it and they say, you are great, man, you have your reward. So it turns out that motives matter. And this is a problem for, for legalists because motives are invisible and unmeasurable. You know, you can see the behavior, but why did they do it, right? Now, getting ahead of tomorrow's class, there's a silver lining here, is that if you want to sit in your community and observe the righteous behavior of others and tell yourself, yeah, but they might not really be righteous because they may be doing it for the wrong motives. Right? Absolutely, you can do that, right? You get a get out of jail free card where you can knock anybody's righteousness down by just telling yourself they're probably doing it for the wrong motives. Right. Which is why Jesus is going to start the next chapter saying, judge not. Right. But we'll get there. 
if you're helping someone and expecting something in return, you're doing business, not kindness. We see this in, in, in other examples Jesus gives, right? You invite somebody over to your house, very nice, and they invite you to their house, very nice, now you're even. Don't expect a reward from God. And there's an interesting concept of accidental righteousness. Right? What if you did something and, and it accidentally, in, incidentally happened to turn out to have a good outcome? And this is where our atheist friends come in, right? The atheist might stop at the side of the road and, and help, you know, a, 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 a lady change your tire. But it doesn't exist for an atheist. There cannot be accidental righteousness. It's not righteousness in the divine biblical sense. Societally, that's great. And we should all encourage each other. But there's no such thing as accidental righteousness. The motive is key. And I, this is a terrible story, but it's a, it's a dark humor, funny story. Um, this lady um, was in a drunken rage in her house. And she pulled a knife and she stabbed her partner. And uh, the ambulance came, they rushed him off. The doctors went to sew him up. And when they went to sew him up, they looked inside and they said, cancer of the liver. He saved his life. If his wife hadn't stabbed him in a drunken rage, he would have died of cancer, right? Isn't that awesome? She's a lifesaver. <laughs> not quite right like you know if, if if you're trying to stab and kill someone and accidentally you save their life that's not righteous behavior right it doesn't you know your motives matter you were trying to kill them that's it no righteousness but whatever outcomes may happen it's still not righteousness if you started from a negative starting point so i'm going to paraphrase this is a, always an oversimplification when you when you read quote principles but you want to think of it as when you're doing something that God wants you to do as God wants you to do it, and you wouldn't have done it if you were an atheist. Right? This is something an atheist would never do. And, and if you start to do some accounting in your life, you might find the list is getting pretty small, right? any activity which you cannot find an atheist doing those are the ones that count the ones that nobody knows about now we're at verse 19 and there's a technical note here do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth this feels like a big topic shift within the chapter and it might be, and I'll invite your comments in, in discussion afterwards, um, because we've been talking about all kinds of things which have the appearance of righteousness, and all of a sudden, oh, oh, and about money, right? This may be one of those cases of cultural context, that in that time, in the Jewish world, in Jewish religion, if you were wealthy, that would be considered a sign of righteousness, right? Because surely... God has blessed you. So there's two ways you can look at the second half of this chapter. You can look at it as a continuation of the theme, or you can see it as a shift to another general danger. And uh, and I'm still weighing 
the two. Uh, you know, verse 20 says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which to me suggests that it's actually following the same trend. Going, if you want to build up something to, to manifest your righteousness, right? Don't build up a bank account. Build up a, an account with God. Because that is a much um, effective and long-lasting and proper way to invest, you know, your, your energy rather than in wealth that um, can perish. And again, we're going to not spend death in this next section, but it's there's a lot to it. Um, but I want you to look at verse... Now it's my turn to lose my verse. The verse where he says, oh no, here we go. Sorry, this is the verse we started with. I got ahead of myself. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. I want to jump back for a second to a topic we discussed um, yesterday about these absolute statements and whether you are really fulfilling the commandments of Christ. So I had some discussions on the side about this, right? The command of Christ here is do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth. Okay, so if you have a bank account that has more money than you need to feed you for the next few weeks into the next paycheck, if you have any kind of retirement savings or other kind of investment account, if you have any assets that you can uh, turn into wealth, technically speaking, you're in violation of this command of Christ. And you go, well, that's kind of extreme. That's absolutely radical. That's insane. And yeah, yeah it kind of is, right? And, and But we've seen this as a recurring theme. Jesus puts on you. This is exactly what he said to the rich young man. This isn't the only verse, right? The rich young man says, I've done. I've reached a certain level. And Jesus says, okay, level up. Get rid of all your possessions. Then we'll see. And, and, and I believe that that man struggled on that for the rest of his life. And if I tell you, and it's not me, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is telling you, do not lay up treasures on earth. Are you obeying this? And I'm not telling you this because I want you to go liquidate all your assets. The reason I'm telling you is because we see other people failing chronically in other visible aspects. I don't know how much you have in your bank account, but I can tell that that brother over there has a problem with X, Y, Z. And we go, brother, you have this problem. This is the commandment. You need to live up to that commandment, right? And and I and we talked to you last week and we talked to you last month and we talked to you. We've been working with you for a year and you are unrepentant. You are un, unchanging. You haven't changed your behavior. Maybe true, right? And, and I say to us, you know, Jesus also said, don't lay up treasures in heaven and on earth. And how, how are we doing with that? And how are you going to be doing next week and next month, right? Do you figure by the end of the year, you'll be comfortable without any retirement savings and without any money in the bank? At the rate inflation is going, we might all be there anyway. <laughs> we might get some help, outside help on this. But... 
there are we need to help each other absolutely right but there are some things that you are just going to struggle with all your life all your life right and you're going to see other people struggling with some things all their life and be very cautious about putting some things in a little box aside and say, that's okay because we're all struggling with that. So we kind of make a pact among ourselves because we all have bank accounts, right? But this other thing is a problem that only some of us have. So now we're gonna make a big deal occasionally about that problem because that's only 10% of our property. That scares me to death, okay? And again, I'm not advocating inaction. I'm not advocating ignoring sin or accepting sin or saying that sin is okay. All I'm saying is, my goodness, we're all in trouble through these two chapters. And if we're going to approach anybody in a state of continual sin, then we have to acknowledge that we also are in a state of continual shortcomings. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. That's another commandment of Christ. Do not be anxious for your life. Right? Can you just turn your anxiety off? Not really. Anxiety is a problem that has just skyrocketed in, in modern society. Not everybody's entirely sure why, but... Uh, you know, we're the wealthiest and, and the healthiest and the most long-lived we've ever been in the history of humanity. And yet people are suffering chronic and debilitating anxiety. Epidemic levels. He is tying this on to the, to the wealth question, right? There is a relationship sometimes, right? The reason I keep money in a savings account, or the reason I save for my retirement is because I don't want to be anxious. I, I want to reduce my anxiety. One of the reasons for anxiety is you live in a city. I know you all live in acreages, and you think, oh, yeah, we don't have, right? I want you to envision this as your mind, right? Is your mind just full of so much stuff? Is there so much going on in your mind that it's just burning you up? It's making you anxious. What, what kind of things are we anxious about? We, we're anxious because we want to control things. We want to predict things. We want to be safe. Right? We want to know things. And maybe we should simplify our thinking. Which is why Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added on to you. Okay, right from the money all the way through anxiety, there's, you look through it all, it's all about too much going on. Right, we have the account of Martha, where Jesus says, you know, Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things but one thing is necessary. So even in ecclesial life, we can do this. We can pack our life with so much stuff. Like what Martha wanted to do was, was fine. It was a noble thing, right? But it was too much. And it was in the wrong priority, right? 
Make sure that even in ecclesial life, in your spiritual life, in your family life, that you're putting first things first and, and be willing to let go of all the other things because they're going to follow. They're going to be taken care of. So we spent yesterday demolishing our illusions about what we can achieve. And today, hopefully, we've demolished some of your illusions about what you thought you had achieved, right? So all the ways in which you thought you were righteous, so maybe you're not. And as a consequence, you know, we're, we're crushed. This is what we promised at, at the beginning. And so you're going to have moments, possibly frequently, possibly continually, where you're going to say, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not worthy. I, I can't. It's just, it's just too much. Right? Even the things that I thought I did are, are worthless, quite possibly. And to the degree you can embrace and accept that, to that degree you will love what God has done for you. Now let's go to Romans chapter 8. If something happens to you and you say, oh no, I, I realize I'm a terrible sinner. It's not that you're a terrible sinner that has changed. The thing that has changed is your realization that you were a terrible sinner. You're already a terrible sinner. You're already deeply in need of salvation. You may discover the extent at different points in life and be shocked by it. God is not shocked. He knew all along well before you fell into that pit. He knew you were in trouble. He might have set that pit up for you to give you that information, okay? And so we carry this weight. And then we read Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the challenge for us to carry forward. Can you bear in mind that you are crushed and also accept the word of scripture, which tells you there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is a, a tremendous chapter. We could read the whole thing, but let's skip ahead to verse 31 and read from 31 to the end. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how will he also, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans chapter five, it tells us Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We didn't have to do something in order to convince Jesus to die for us. He died for us in advance. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? We don't believe in a devil. We don't believe that there's someone else out there saying, oh, no, this person must burn. Who's going to bring the charge against us? Yes, we're crushed. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, as it is written. For thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.